So 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 24. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Thank you, Alan. Uh, keep your Bibles open. We're going to work our way through here. There's uh, some confusing looking sentences. There's some unusual looking details. So if you can follow along as we explain it, you will be well served this morning. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, I learned this recently, but did you know you can buy square watermelons? Um, I mean, cubes, technically, but you can buy a, 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 a square watermelon. Uh, I know it's true because I saw it on the internet and everything on the internet is true. Uh, but did you know you could actually make your own square watermelon? Um, it's very simple, uh, assuming you can grow a watermelon. Uh, all you need to do is buy the mould. You can, I assume, buy it on the internet. Uh, you, you buy the mould, you put your baby watermelon in the mould and eventually as it grows you wait and by the end you'll have a square watermelon. I don't know why you want a square watermelon but you could have one. I guess it would be easy to put on the table. And uh, Anyway, you can shape your watermelon. I mean you could probably make it a, a pyramid shaped watermelon. If you liked you could shape your watermelon uh, any way you please providing you had something to shape it. Now that said, it's not as if we have, in this world, shaped and unshaped watermelons. Bear with me. Uh, regular watermelons are shaped as well, aren't they? They're shaped by their genes, they're shaped by the environment they grow in, they're shaped by uh, gravity, they, they are shaped too. All watermelons are affected, are shaped by something, whether you have thought about that or not. In fact, you've probably never thought so much about watermelons, but not for no reason. See, just like watermelons, all people are shaped by something. 
All people are shaped by something, whether we realize it or not. It might be harder to make a cube-shaped person, but we are all shaped by things. We're shaped by our experiences. We're shaped by our upbringing. We're shaped by our physical limitations. We're shaped by relationships we have. Sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes the things that are shaping us actually change and we, we take on different shapes. And the question is, what's shaping you? What's shaping you? What's making you who you are? What's, what's forming you? What's affecting and working on your life to make you the person that you are at the moment? What's shaping you? Now, what we've seen so far in the book of First John is something dramatic has happened in the life of all those who call themselves God's people. He's, he's said, hasn't he, they've been rescued, they've been forgiven, and importantly, they've been brought into this new and living relationship with God called His children. Adopted, but also organically His children because He lives in them. And now what John is saying is that dramatic change inevitably shapes God's people. It makes them different. It has an effect on their life. It makes them who they are. So if you believe in Jesus, is that you? Are you being shaped by that relationship? Are you being shaped by what he has done to you and in you? How would you know? How would you know? And if you haven't believed yet, could you yet be changed? Could you yet be shaped? Uh, those are some of the questions we're going to be exploring as we work our way through these verses this morning. Uh, what is that fundamental shape of God's people that we're looking for, that John's speaking about? Well, he actually doesn't hide it. It's no great secret. It's right there at the top of the passage. It's the message that these believers had heard from the very beginning. Verse 11. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. It's very simple. We should love one another. But that asks the question then, well, what is that love? What does that love look like? I mean, there's all sorts of loves in the world, isn't there? Some of them are healthy, some of them are unhealthy. What about Christian love? What, what does that look like? Well, it's here that John sets up a contrast. It seems a little bit odd. It's not a contrast you might expect, but the more we tease it out, the more sense it makes. Uh, and that's the reason we've got the blackboard here. I, this, I, it helped me a lot to visualize this. I hope it helps you as well. Bar my handwriting. I apologize for that in advance. I'm going to read this, these verses, and then we're going to pick out together what this contrast is all about and how John uses it in this passage. So let me read from verse 12 through the first half of verse 16, and then we'll pick out this contrast together. So starting at verse 12. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. 
it seems like a bit of a strange command, doesn't it? Don't be like Cain. I mean, very few people would go out in the world and think, you know, I'm going to be like Cain. Uh, but actually what John is doing is setting up this real strong contrast, which we're going we're gonna to pick out now. Let me, let me try and illustrate it for you. There's two people mentioned. We have Cain and we have Jesus. And John describes for us who they are and what they're like. I, I hope you can all read that. I'll step back in a moment so you can. Cain is of evil. Uh, we saw that last week that people are either of God or of evil. Cain is described, therefore, as of evil, of the evil one. Cain is of hate, we're told. Uh, John explains that murder is an outcome of hate, therefore Cain is uh, identified by or identified with hate. He therefore is a murderer. He's a murderer. We, we see that in Genesis chapter 4, he murders his brother, the very first murder committed. And therefore, he's characterized as one who takes life. He is a life taker. Now, John fleshes this out a bit further. He says Cain is not just Cain. Cain is an expression or a representation of the world. Cain represents the world. We know from the story of Genesis 4 that Cain killed his brother out of jealousy. He saw Abel's righteousness. He saw that Abel had a relationship with God and was accepted by God. And he was jealous of that. And that jealousy spurred that hatred which drove him to kill. And what John is saying is that same impulse exists in the world as well. Cain represents the world in that. Now maybe the world is not often driven to killing those it sees as righteous, although in some parts of the world it certainly is, but it's still driven to that hatred and to that anger. There's jealousy, there's hatred that comes from that. And the result of all of this is spiritual death. Sorry, my handwriting's getting worse as we get down, but spiritual death, that is the result of this way of life now, the reason John works through that in such detail, as, as, as intense as it seems, is he's setting up this contrast for us. And the contrast comes very clear when you look at what he says about Jesus. Jesus is of the Father. Jesus is the righteous one. And therefore, rather than being the definition of hate, he's the definition of the Father. He is love. He is a representation of love. Unlike Cain, Jesus is not a murderer. He is life. He is, in fact, the life giver. If murder is taking of life, Jesus is the life giver. Cain takes life. Jesus lays his life down. Yeah, I'm running out of space. Cain takes away another person's life. Jesus gives his own life. And Jesus, therefore, John says, represents not the world, but God's children. Jesus is the picture of God's children. And the result for God's children is not spiritual death, 
It is eternal life. That's a contrast that John's setting up in this passage. He's saying the world is divided into two. And this is what these two look like. One is represented by Cain. One is represented by Jesus. One will hate us. The other is an example to us. But he says Jesus is more than just an example to us. Jesus' love is not only for us to look at and try to imitate. Jesus' love for us is a love that gives life. Jesus' love is a love that takes us from over here to over here. Jesus' love changes us and therefore it not only changes who we are, it changes where we're going. From spiritual death to eternal life. From enemies of God to the children of God. It is a love that gives life to all who believe in him, allowing them not only to, love, to, to, to live, but also to love. It brings us near the Father and it makes us like the Father, to live like him. It is a life-giving love that Jesus brings. Life that gives, uh, love, sorry, that gives life. Uh, it struck me the other day that that's a truth that we see in a whole range of stories. We were, we were watching uh, some of the Disney classics with the kids and you see that theme that love gives life in so many of those stories. I mean, it shouldn't surprise us. Good stories hold reflections of the true, the best story. But, but you see that in these fairy tales. You know, Snow White, uh, it's true love that breaks the curse and brings her to life. Sleeping Beauty, true love, breaks the evil spell, wakes her up and restores the kingdom. Uh, Beauty and the Beast. It is only when true love comes that the curse is re re reversed and things uh, come back and are restored to life again. It's that truth. Love gives life. And what John is saying is that's not just a story, it's not a fairy tale or a really nice idea, it's true. Love gives life. Because Jesus' love brings life to all who receive it. It is the gift of life itself. A saving love, a saving life that rescues, as John says, from death to life, from darkness to light. Jesus' love saves and Jesus' love is yours. It is offered freely to you, regardless of who you are, to change who you are, to change where you're heading and to reshape you fundamentally. Because that's what that love does. Not only does it change your status, it changes your life. And we see how it does that in the second half of verse 16. I'll just read all of verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and in truth. Jesus' love grows love within us which then goes from us. His love makes us love and shows us how to love. Giving our life to others by giving our life for others. Uh, here's how John Stott put it, commenting on these verses. He said, A person's life is his most precious possession. Consequently, to rob him of it is the greatest sin we can commit against him. 
while to give one's own love on his behalf is the greatest possible expression of love for him. And that's what John's saying. That what Jesus has done for us, that love, that life-giving love, that is what we are called to as his people. We have received that love. We're called to show that love. I mean, when you think of it, it's an astonishing thing that John's saying to us here, isn't it? it John's saying to us, not only are you called to love like Jesus, but your, call, your love is called to do what Jesus' love did as well. Jesus' love brought life. Your love is called to bring life as well. Okay, not saving life uh, like Jesus did, but love that gives life and brings life. I mean, we, 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 we want... For example, a, a lively, life-filled church. I think we could all attest to that. Well, John is saying, here's how to have that. <laughs> it's not by, by having the flashiest or best programs, the most dynamic leaders. I mean, those things are great, don't get me wrong. But what John is saying is to, to bring that life that we want, what we need to do is love. We, we get that as a church by loving our church, by loving one another. That's what gives our church life. Not just loving our church in the abstract, I mean, that's, that's very easy to, to, to say, that's very easy to claim we're doing. But loving our church practically, loving our church in reality, not just in word or tongue, as he says, but in truth and in deed. I mean, how easy it is to say, I, I love our church. I, I, I will love our church more. That's very easy to say. Uh, we've probably all said that. How much harder is it for us to do I'll love that person in this way. But that's what John says we're called to do. Specific, sacrificial, self-giving love. Now, yes, we may never be called to, the, to the, 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 the glorious sacrifice of our life in one dramatic act for someone else's life. That seems unlikely. But we are called to the less glorious, less glamorous, everyday sacrifice of our life laying down our lives for our brothers in our actions, in the everyday. Now, there are literally hundreds of ways we can do this, and we, we could sit here and, and brainstorm enormous lists of them, but I'm going to give you five, just to, to get you started, five ways in which you can love our church this week. They're not groundbreaking. I, I'm going to confess that. They're, they're nothing that you haven't heard before, but they are concrete ways that you can love our church and therefore bring life to our church and to those around you number one go to connect <laughs> it seems very simple but go to connect uh, you, you can love your church family you can love uh, your christian brothers and sisters simply by being with them it's very hard to do that remotely uh, we've found that out lately haven't we but by going by attending by being part of that you serve you you, you grow you help each other in our walks with Jesus, and that is love. Number two, make a phone call or a visit. Uh, for, for bonus points, just open your directory and pick at random. <laughs> then mark it and pick a new person next week. Work your way through the book. Get in touch with each other. Number three, have someone round for dinner. What better way to show love than actually just getting to know each other? Maybe someone you've never had round for dinner. Number four, volunteer for a ministry. We've got some new deacons, help them out. We've got mainly music, we've got youth group, we've got other uh, works in the pipeline. 
give of your time and energy. That is giving of yourself. That is loving our church. Number five, call or message someone to meet up for a coffee, for a beer, for breakfast, for a cup of tea, whatever it is, however it is, but do it to read the Bible with them and pray. Because how better to love someone than be reminded with them of God's love for you both by opening His Word and growing together in Him. Here's your challenge. Go home, or maybe you are at home already, in your household, think of one or two ways that you can concretely love our church or love someone in our church this week. And don't just think of them, but do them. Now, there might be a sneaking thought in your mind here. There might be a question that's just bubbling around under the surface. But how do I know I've made that change? How do I know that that love is in me, that God's love is in me? How can I be sure that I've received that? Do, do, do I love enough? Have I, have I made it? And I think if we're honest, they're very real questions. They're questions perhaps that we've asked ourselves, perhaps that we're asking ourselves today. But they're not the right questions. The right question is, what's God like? Maybe it's not the question you've ever really asked yourself, but that's actually the right question. What's God like? Because that question has the answer that you need, and it's that answer that John gives us in verse 19 and 20. Uh, look at verse 19. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. That's what we want, isn't it? We want to be able to set our hearts at rest in His presence, to know that we're His, to know confidently that we're His. How do we do that? Well, the answer John gives is, God is greater than your heart. God is greater than your heart and He knows everything. Our hearts are very fickle, aren't they? Uh, we, we doubt, we tie ourselves up in knots of worry and anxiety. But God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than your heart. And He knows everything. He really knows your heart. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to buy uh, a new mountain bike at the moment. Um, I sold my other one. It turns out there's not many mountain bikes around and so I'm trying to, to pick one up so I can get riding again. Uh, and I looked at one the other day. Uh, I looked at one on Friday. Um, and look, on the surface, it's a great looking bike. Really well taken care of, really clean and neat. It's been upgraded. It just looks in fantastic condition. Now imagine I, I've seen that bike and I've gone away and I thought, yeah, I'm pretty keen. Uh, I really like it. It looks great. I'll probably buy it. But I'll just do a little bit of research first, just to be sure. And that night I'm doing my research and what I find is pictures of this bike being absolutely thrashed. You know, being raced, being taken over enormous jumps, being, you know, absolutely flogged. I mean, do you think I'm going to want that bike? I mean, I know I'm not. I don't want a bike that's been ridden like that. Who knows what's going to happen? Uh, if, I, if I'd seen those pictures and had agreed to a deal, I'd probably renege on it, wouldn't I? I'm not going to give my money for a bike that's been driven like that. I don't want something with that history. Well, John says, God knows your history. 
Actually, he knows your future as well. He knows everything. He knows it all. He knows all your nasty thoughts. He knows all your awful motives. He knows all your deep, dark secrets. He knows things that you wouldn't want to know yourself. I mean, it should be terrifying, shouldn't it? We don't want to face up to those things for ourselves. It should, it should freak us out. And yet what John says is, it's assurance. It's beautiful, perfect assurance because, yes, God knows it. God knew it and he still sent Jesus. He knew it and he still sent Jesus for you. To save you. Knowing exactly who you are, knowing exactly who you will be, in spite of it all. He saw your history and he did not renege on his word. He fulfilled his promise. He loves you in spite of it all. There is nothing your heart can bring to mind. There is no deed or thought or word it can dredge up from your history that he hasn't already forgiven in his great and perfect forgiveness in Jesus in his great love for you as his child. That's John's first answer to our uncertainty. The second comes in verse 21 to 24. Uh, I'll read those verses. Verse 21. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he has commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. God makes one request of his children and it's a very simple request. It's very straightforward. One command that confirms that you're in him. Believe and love. Uh, actually, you, you'll see in your Bibles there's the word and between those two things. It's not there because this is one command. Believe, love. Two sides of the same coin. Believe in the love that you've seen in Jesus. Believe that that is yours and love with that very same love. See, God isn't some miser parent sending uh, you know, setting unrealistic expectations for his kids. You know, you, you've got a B minus, you know, how, how dare you? God's not like that at all. God is a God who's covered all your failings with Jesus' perfect righteousness. And so his calling on you is very simple. Simply believe and love. He is the ultimate loving father. He is the perfect father that all fathers fall short of. He is a father who welcomes you into a confident and enjoyable relationship with himself. He, he's not against you, you know, forgive, forever judging, forever finding you wanting. He is for you. And not only is he for you, but he's in you as well. We know it by the spirit he gave us. See, he doesn't just call you to imitate your love and uh, to imitate his love and, you know, then push you out the door and say, off you go and uh, do it. He calls you to imitate his love and then he puts his spirit of love in you to help you. Now here's how another commentator puts it. He says, God's love within us is the driving force required to love others. It is the fuel of love. 
This means our love does not only involve following Jesus' example, but is a relational power that dwells in our hearts and prompts the expression of love towards our brothers and sisters. Uh, when I was in high school, there was that, that slogan, you know, what would Jesus do? It, it sounds great, but without Jesus in you, that will kill you because you're not Jesus. But John's saying his spirit does live in you and his spirit then can help you in that. You can't, you know, tell a car to go without putting fuel in its tank. It's just completely ridiculous. And God has put the fuel we need in our tank. He has put his love in us. He has given his spirit to us to live in us, to help us, to direct us, to power us, to transform us. Our Father provides everything we need. Uh, that's the heart of that line there in verse 22. On, on the face of it, if you took it by itself, uh, it says we receive from him anything we ask. You, your mind might run away with that, but we need to understand that you know that's not whatever we ask. Uh, the context, the rest of the Bible doesn't allow that. What, what John is saying, it's what we ask as his children, as children seeking to please him, looking uh, to, to find his will, to obey and grow in him. Whatever we ask in that, anything we ask in that, he will give us for that end. Because he knows that's the right and good and best end for us. How do we know he'll give us anything to that? Well, he's already given us his spirit. What more could we need? What more could you need to do God's will than God's spirit living in your heart? Do you need guidance? Well, well, you've got his spirit who knows all. Do you need wisdom? Well, you've got the spirit of wisdom. Do you need strength? You have the spirit who created everything. What God is saying to us here is be confident. He is close to you. He is great in you. He is good for you. That's what God is like. And he is yours. We live in him, and he lives in us. So you don't have to live in fear. If you're his, you don't have to live in anxiety or, or constantly looking over your shoulder. Love and trust in him is the simple sign that you are in him, that this life eternal is yours, that you have passed from death to life. Because God changes your shape. He makes you Jesus-shaped. You know that he's shaping you, not, not because you've suddenly become the loveliest, nicest, bestest person around. That's not how it works. You know it because of who he is. You know it because of what he's said. The gracious, kind love that he's given. And so you simply believe and love too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the depth of your love simply astounds us that you would rescue and redeem and restore people like us. Father, you know us. You know who we are. You know what we've done. You know what we will do. And yet despite all of that, you loved us still. And in that love in Jesus, you have given us life. You have taken us from death and promised us eternity in you. Father, we praise you for what you have done. And we give you thanks for not only have you called us to imitate this love, but you've given your spirit to help us.
Father, may his strength work in us, that we would show this love, that like Jesus, we would sacrifice for one another, that we would give ourselves up for the sake of each other, to serve, to show love, to grow one another in you. Father, may your love be seen in us. May it be experienced by all who come into contact with us. May your love in us confirm us and make us confident in you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.